Hello, Shine Runners. Welcome to the Shine Runner Show, quenching your marketing, distribution, sales, and experiential event thirst for more horsepower on the craft beer, cider, spirits, and winery industry. My name is Mark Colburn, and I'll be your crew chief. Today's episode, we're going to chat with Tom McCormick, the executive director with the California Craft Brewers Association. Our program's goal to give you some real-life marketing, distribution, experiential event, and sales experiences from a guy who's been in the craft beer, spirits, and cider biz for 25 years. The objective of this program will be to help you better understand marketing's role, priority, and importance in the marketplace and how it can help build your brand. Please send Shinerunner episode questions or comments to shinerunner at thebrewingnetwork.com. First of all, let's get into a quick recap from episode 20. Uh, that was Fighting Rotation Nation. Now, the, the Rotation Nation, or one-and-done trend, is fueled by consumer demand for choice. But brewers and suppliers are somewhat to blame as they continue to innovate in search of the next Indianapolis 500 winner. The episode focused on what I call handle slot productivity and the need for a monthly volume agreement between the supplier and the account buyer. If the two parties can agree on a monthly keg target that will meet with the account's revenue and volume criteria, then the supplier will have a goal that, when achieved, should theoretically preserve the brand's draft handle position. Now, communication and education uh, the, about that new placement with the account's gatekeepers and influencers, and those people are the bartenders, the barbacks, and the waitstaff, is crucial. The presentation to that group should include the marketing story, your KDA or key differentiating advantage, and what are two salient selling points on the beverage being tapped. Your rep should also request that he or she be informed when the keg gets tapped in and when it kicks. This request should be made to the bartenders and the barbacks. Now, one last critical point. The account must be supported. You've got to do this. This can include a pub crawl, networking, gathering, car club meeting, or wholesaler team invitation. Your goal is to water that seed so that it blooms in the new account. Where it's underachieving, challenge and incentivize your rep to develop a monthly promotional feature program to jumpstart trial. And one last reminder, not included in last episode, is be sure you get a new draft handle in the account. Old ones need to be recycled. Don't let your handle go up with duct tape and a Sharpie. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this before. So let's get into episode 21. Okay, Shine Runners, today's topic, we're chatting with Mr. Tom McCormick, Executive Director with the California Craft Beer Association. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you today? Fantastic. We absolutely appreciate you coming on the Shine Runner Show, and we'd like to jump right into it. Um, Tom, could you go ahead and let us know about your background, how you got into the craft beer biz, and, and how you started the CCBA? Well, I'll be brief because it's a pretty 
pretty long uh, story and long history. I got into the craft brewing industry uh, in 1982. I was trying to open up a small brewery um, up in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada and was unsuccessful at that. But that led me to uh, the idea of opening up a small craft only beer distributorship, a wholesaler, because a lot of the craft brewers, well, not a lot, because there weren't a lot of craft brewers back then. We called them microbreweries. But the microbreweries back then in the early 80s had a very hard time getting distribution because the existing distributors didn't know what a microbrewed beer was. So I kind of got talked into it by a handful of uh, microbreweries, small breweries back then. So got into the industry uh, by opening a small craft beer only uh, distributorship and sold just uh, some authentic imports um, from Germany and Belgium, but uh, also sold the, you know, the, the beers from the microbreweries at that time. And I had that business for 10 years and I've done a number of things since then. And in between coming on board here at the CCBA, um, the California Craft Brewers Association was actually founded in 1989. So um, it was in existence for uh, quite some time before I came on board in 2005, although it had been inactive for about five years um, before I came on board. So in 2005, um, the board of directors at that time tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, we're looking for someone to come in and reinvigorate the association and grow it. And um, I was, sounded like a, a, a great role, great job. And uh, so I've been doing this as executive director at the CCBA since 2005. And it's been just an amazing uh, honor and uh, quite a quite a ride. It's been a uh, it's been a lot of fun and and challenging, but um, it's it's been the highlight of my career, I must say. Wow, fantastic! Thanks, Tom. I didn't know all that. Um, so a, a home brewer sounds like a, a brewer, a distributor, and now an executive uh, with CCBA. Fascinating background. Uh, could we take a, a look at at what trends you're seeing in the industry in both the on and off premise? Well, uh, we saw a significant um, shift evolution in things when the big breweries bought into, started buying into the craft beer segment. You know, that goes back now five, six, seven years ago. Um, and they've been very aggressive in both the on premise and the off premise. So, we're seeing a lot of what I call faux craft brands in both uh, those sets. Um, so it's been very, very competitive for craft breweries, uh, marketing head to head in the craft beer segment, both tap handles on the on-premise and um, in the beer sets in the off-premise. Um, so just very competitive. We're starting to see a, um, I think, a reduction in skew space. So I think retailers are beginning to shrink their space that's allocated to craft beer, uh, certainly in the on off-premise, maybe not so much on the on-premise. Uh, so I would just say that the, the trends are very competitive. Um, we're seeing more interest in wine and spirits, um, particularly on-premise, so getting more competitive on that level. 
Um, so just a competitive, competitive uh, atmosphere out there, but still uh, a lot of love and uh, a lot of demand for craft beer. Okay, thank you. Yeah, we'll get a little more into that competition uh, shortly. What styles have you seen are really popping? Well, you know, there's just a constant uh, evolution in in styles. Uh, what I'm seeing right now is IPA holding their own. <laughs> you know, IPA is the number one selling style, has been for yeah, quite some it. time now. There's very, yeah, very, very little sign of... Uh, of that diminishing at all. So the IPA is still very strong. We, of course, saw a big surge in popularity in the hazy IPAs. That's begun to level off. I think the most interesting change right now that we see is um, both uh, kind of the lager Pilsner styles are popping and also the lower alcohol kind of quote-unquote session beers of uh, various styles are are popping right now so that's um you know the the pilsner style lager styles have not been particularly strong in the craft category uh really forever and that is significantly starting to change now which i think is a good thing it can really draw in a lot of new craft beer consumers definitely okay and and what about styles that are dying off you see anything that's just really falling off the radar no i mean no i I haven't seen anything really drop off there are those styles that have never been you know significant um you know barley wines and um you know some of the kind of more esoteric styles but so they're kind of holding steady, but no, I haven't really seen anything drop off. The hazy IPA, IPAs uh, slowing, but I wouldn't call it a, a dramatic or, or radical drop off. So, not really seen any any dramatic drop offs. How about seasonals? Do you you think those are still strong? Not as strong as they once were. You know, there was a, a time not too long ago, uh, you know, five ten years ago, and. Um, for for a pretty prolonged period of time where they were very popular. Uh, I think people got a little bit of seasonal fatigue because partly because uh, a lot of the breweries were trying to beat each other first to market. So we started to see seasonals that were uh, showing up uh, far in, in advance of the actual season itself. Summer, um, summer ale in February. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, of course, you always have the problem with uh, the sell-through. There's, you know, some lingering seasonals that are well beyond the season that they were intended for. With, uh, you know, those should be taken out of the marketplace, but sometimes they're not. So um, there's still some classic seasonals out there. The consumers still have fun with them and still love them, but they're not. Uh, we're not seeing the the sales velocity that we once saw with seasonals. Okay, thanks. So kind of a changing gears a little bit here. Um, do you predict more taproom openings in the future? And taprooms, you mean uh, brewery? Brewery taprooms, tap rooms, tap rooms yeah. associated with a, yep. yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, yes, I, I, I do. <laughs> Substantial? That is kind of or? the preferred model, so to speak. Yeah, sorry, do, do you think that this is the future model for craft? I do. I mean, you cannot replicate what 
many of the breweries have done in the last 30 to 35 years, such as Sierra Nevada, Lagunitas, um, New Belgium, um, you know, to mention a, a few, they started very, very small and they grew into national brands. And I just don't see that replicating itself at all. You can perhaps open a, a brewery, a, a small brewery or, or medium-sized brewery now today and get into the distribution business and be successful at that. Um, and we have seen, you know, some relatively new breweries that are 10 to 15 year old, 15 years old that have been successful at that, but, uh, it's very, very difficult. So, uh, yeah, the new model going forward is really going to be breweries that sell direct to the consumer through their tasting room and maybe some limited distribution locally and maybe expanding outward into some regional markets, but um, not expanding into a national brand. So yes, the, the tap room brewery model is, is definitely the, the, the model of the future. And that's what we're seeing opening up today. Excellent. Thanks. Um, as the craft segment's growth downshifts, do you see more or predict more consolidation? Yes, uh, absolutely. We're starting to see that. I think the mergers and acquisitions on the large size scale, such as Heineken buying Lagunitas, Anheuser-Busch buying a variety of, of breweries, those big, large players um, continuing to to buy into the craft category. I think we may see a little bit more of that, but not much. But I do see um, more what we call craft on craft mergers and acquisitions, where, for example, just recently Mammoth Brewing Company and, um, gosh, the, the brewery in, in Reno, Nevada, Great Basin, yeah. Uh, brewing company joined forces. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense uh, to combine forces, increase your efficiencies, and grow your brands together. If you can align your, your distribution channels, you can promote each other's beers at your t uh, tap rooms. Uh, so, yes, I see definitely more craft on craft uh, mergers and acquisitions, but I don't see a lot of venture capital private equity and big breweries getting into game. Maybe a little bit, but not like we've seen in the past. Hey, um, Tom, how do you feel about uh, the Jim Cook and uh, Dogfish Head, you know, Boston Beer Company and Dogfish Head teaming up? Well, you know, I would consider that a quote-unquote craft on craft. Those are two pretty big craft players, but both are craft breweries as defined yep. by the Brewers Association. So, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I won't get into the details of some of the financing that Dogfish Head had taken on uh, in the past, but, um, you know, I think that probably became due, and uh, it makes sense for Jim Cook to diversify and excite his portfolio. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense on a lot of different levels, and congratulations to both of them. 
Yeah, I have to agree with you. I'm both really good guys in the industry too. Um, so here, let's go to uh, another question. Yeah. Uh, to what do you attribute, you mentioned spirits and wine, to, to what do you attribute the recent growth of spirits and wine, given the, you know, the beer category fell below 49% market share just in the last couple of months? Well, you know, consumer tastes are always changing, always evolving. And, you know, each generation that comes up uh, grows up in a, in a different um, atmosphere, different uh, social environment and landscape. And so things just change. So I think that's part of it. But um, also, I think spirits and wine have been good about also uh, kind of changing their their presentation and and how they they do things they both have embraced uh, you know new flavors and interesting presentations at the on-premise and off-premise so it's a combination of things i don't think you can really put your finger on any one thing but um it's uh you know, beer has had a good run for a long time and will continue to have a good run. But uh, obviously, there's been a, a pretty noticeable shift. Yes. So how can craft offset these market share declines? Well, you know, there, we have craft beer and we have, quote unquote, big beer. So yeah, I mean, it's not fair to say is, craft has, is declining. But, but how can craft fight against the spirits and wines then? How's that? Yeah, because I think beer, big beer, has a serious problem of um, really stupid advertising, and that is catching up with them. These iconic brands that have been around forever are declining, in in significantly declining, and they deserve to decline because they uh, their advertising is is mediocre at at best. At best. Um, they're not, not catering, not communicating, not connecting to a broad demographic of people that are out there. And that's why, in part, craft has been so, so successful over the last 30 plus years. But as for craft, I think, um, you know, being authentic, uh, continuing to be authentic, continuing to tell their story of who they are not trying to be something something that they are not. Um, continue to uh, innovate in styles and flavors. And, of course, the craft industry has really been good at that uh, over the years. So continuing with that and continuing to make a, a good product that is uh, authentic in nature and... Um, has the the quality and the passion behind it. So I think all the ingredients are there for craft to maintain steady growth. And I'm optimistic about the craft growth going forward. I know it has slowed, but we were seeing growth rates that were unsustainable. So now I see kind of between probably a three to 5% annual growth rate for craft beer going forward. And, you know, a lot of industries would love to add that. Well, it's very optimistic. That's great news. Um, you, you mentioned innovation. Would you say that the craft beer industry has an over-reliance on innovation? And is this a key to survival? I don't think over-reliance. I think it's good to still have some core or flagship brands that 
you're kind of known for and to, you know, have some steady styles in your portfolio. But um, I guess Sierra Nevada would be a classic example of, you know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is still pretty epic beer, but they've done so many different styles around that. So I don't think the segment is over-reliant on it. And I love it and I look forward to every day seeing what new innovations are coming out of all the different craft breweries. Okay. Um, I'm seeing craft brewers expanding into spirits, perhaps as a method to sustain growth. Are you seeing this too? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, And I think this trend will continue. It's a little bit of a challenging, a little bit of a challenge from a licensing perspective and, just so our listeners know, it's kind of an oddity, but here in California and most other states, you cannot have a, a brewery uh, on the same premise as a distillery or a winery and vice versa. You can have them contiguous to each other, so right next to each other, but you can't have, you, you have uh, your license, which is a, a, a licensed premise footprint, and they can't overlap. So it makes it challenging. And we as an association are really looking into the future and really looking at possibly changing that. So it's easier for breweries to also make spirits and wine and vice versa. So um, I do think it makes, I mean, all three of those industries use stainless steel tanks (laughs) and a forklift and pallet jacks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's a lot of efficiencies to do that. And as, you know, crack brewers are part scientists, part artists, you know, so a lot of them really kind of fall in love with the whole notion of making spirits and and making wine as well. So, yes, I think that will be uh, definitely a continuing trend. So if I'm a craft brewer, I can, I've got my brewery and if I want to go into spirits, it's got to be adjacent to my brewery. It can't be within. Correct. And you can't move any raw materials or finished product um, in between the two licenses. So it, it it's awkward and cumbersome and doesn't make a lot of sense. So we are looking at changing that, although that would require a a legislative action and uh, that's not easy to do. So that's a long-term vision for us. Yeah, appreciate your efforts on that. So if I did, back to that, if if I I had the distillery and it was legally adjacent, could I sell my spirits in my tap room? Well, no, not exactly. And we Hmm. did um, pass a couple of new laws just in the last two to three years, it, it took a couple of different bills, legislative bills to do this. And what we have done is allowed a common area between the two premises. It can be on either one. And so if you have a brewery and you have a distillery and they're right next to each other, you can set up a common area where consumers, customers can come in and within that designated area, they can have uh, products from each license. So uh, again, kind of to answer your question, yes, sort of, and it's a little awkward and cumbersome, but it's better than it was. (laughs) 
Okay, thank you. Uh, you mentioned forklifts, so I kind of want to uh, shift over to distribution. Uh, with the extreme challenges that wholesalers face, just maintaining their delivery staff, and then we've heard about consolidation as the big wholesalers continue to gobble each other up, and then there's you know uh, brewer and distiller self-distribution. How do you see this industry arm evolving or devolving? Oh, boy. Well, it's going to have to do one or the other. (laughs) Um, There has been massive consolidation, and I think we will continue to see that. So what was once a landscape where there were hundreds of distributors up and down the state of California, many to choose from in each market. Most distributors were family-owned businesses covering uh, a county or two or three at the most. Uh, we're really seeing the demise of that size distributor uh, as they get gobbled up by enormous companies um, here in California and across the country that are just gobbling up these these smaller distributors and themselves becoming very, very large distributors covering a significant portion of the state. We have one distributor here in California based out of of Illinois. It's a $47 billion company, and they sell about a third of all the beer in California goes through that one distributorship. They have branches all up and down the state. So that's just kind of a a taste of what's out there and and what's becoming. But it's, it's going to have to evolve. It's an area that we are really concerned about. And uh, the wholesalers have not been particularly friendly to us and to our legislative efforts. They have a bill this year at the state capitol that would uh, make the brewer-wholesaler contract uh, very one-sided that we are opposed to. So they're trying to roll us on that. So we're going to support alternatives uh, to the marketplace, whether it be Amazon, um, direct shipping, um, new smaller specialty type wholesalers uh, that start up and and perform that service because we're going to need that to get our products to the retailer and to the consumer. And as long as these big wholesalers act only in their interest, uh, we're going to have to find alternative ways to get to the marketplace. Well, I, as a former distributor executive from one of the big boys, I, I have to say I appreciate what you said and what you're doing for the, the smaller brands because without efforts from CCBA, uh, they're, they're probably not going to really be able to get into California. Because I have to say I, I sat on, at those, those meetings, those new product meetings, and, geez, I think 90% of the presentations are no, 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 no. Because already, we already had so many zillion brands that we just weren't, we didn't have space to take any others on. So that's, that's great to hear that uh, CCBA is going to support some alternative channels and opportunities for that small to medium uh, brewer, distiller, winery, and cidery. Um, so uh, you mentioned Amazon also. Um, uh, as Amazon and, say, Total Wine and other companies like Stone take bold distribution steps, do you see or predict the, the three-tier law fading away? Yes. Uh, you know, it already has uh, eroded significantly. You know, if you look at what a strict three-tier uh, landscape 
looks like, well, you know, the, the brewery in California can make beer. They can self-distribute it to the retailer and they can sell it directly to the consumer, both there at the premises and also ship it direct to the consumer via mail or any kind of delivery system within the state. Um, so that's a pretty significant erosion of the three tier, uh, right now. Um, so yes, I, I, I do, I, I see the three tier system, um, changing to kind of meet the, the new demands of having a thousand different breweries just in the state of California. There's a lot, a lot of breweries that are trying to get their, their products into the hands of the consumer. Yeah. So I can I can ship by mail in California if I'm a brewer. Yes, if you're a brewery in California, you can ship directly to a consumer inside the state in California yeah. and you can also deliver uh directly to a consumer directly uh, uh, inside the state of California. Is there a volume requirement somewhere in the fine print on that? No, not in California. There are in some states, and in fact, since not all states even allow that extent of retail sales, but no volume require, uh, limitation here in California. Okay, thanks. So let's talk a little bit about packaging a product. Is the uh, the 22-ounce bomber, I used to love that as a trial package, but is that bottle dying off? I still love it, um, <laughs> but, but yes, I think it is dying off. And, yeah. You know, there there will always be a place for it, but um, it, it's it's slowing. The sales of 22s are, are slowing down significantly, in part because of cans, the rise of cans and the different size uh, cans that are available and the ease of uh, canning, uh, mobile canning line companies are available. And so, yeah, we, we're seeing that the, the 22, the good old-fashioned bomber is, uh, is slowly dying away. Not... A complete death, I don't think, but uh, but it's it's fading. How about twelve ounce bottles? Oh, you know, the good old twelve, um, six, twelve, twenty-four, right in distributor lingo. Yeah, um, the twelve ounce six pack. You know, I, I it's slowing down a little bit again, losing uh, some sales to cans, but I don't see it going away completely. I hope not. God, I'd love the 12 ounce six pack. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, but it, it seems that say uh, the, the millennials that are our audience, the younger people in the audience, they, they have really embraced the cans. And I can understand why for so many reasons. Do you see cans as the future? I do, but I don't think bottles are, are going away completely, but what, a, what a change we have seen, right? Cause you know, you've been in the industry a long time. So 15 years ago, how many, craft beers were in cans. It, it was just almost unheard of. I mean, the first brewery to put beer in a can was Oscar Blues, and I think that was in 2001. Uh, it was you know, like stunning. It was shocking. Like, are you kidding me? No way. <laughs> and look where we are today. <laughs> yeah. And now, what uh, but, but no, I don't, I don't, I don't think they're going to replace bottles completely. Okay. And uh, any views on the, the plastic one-way kegs? Oh, you know, they've actually been around for a long time. When I had my distributorship, we had some one-way plastic kegs way back then in the 80s. But um, they've never really taken off. I kind of get the feeling that they 
aren't going to ever become a big thing, but I've been wrong before, so uh, it's possible. But I, you know, my guess would be that they will kind of serve a purpose and they'll be out there, but I don't think they're going to become the next. I don't think they're going to replace and replicate the, the good old stainless steel keg. Yeah, I got to say, I, I, I notice maybe it's psychological, but I notice a bit of a taste difference when I, I drink something out of a plastic keg. So what do you see, uh, a little bit about innovation now, where, where do you see this cannabis fitting into the craft beer equation? Well, it's going to take some time, but, you know, in the long run, we're, we're going to look back and we're going to say, God, remember when cannabis was illegal? Like, like, you know, you could use it if you had a medical problem, but and people will say, really? Cannabis used to be illegal? That's weird. You know, it's kind of like looking back on prohibition today. I mean, it's wow, it's just weird. But so it's going to take some time. But, you know, I see a complete blending of cannabis and immersion of cannabis into our society over the long term. And that may be a 10 to 15 year vision. But um, I, I do believe that uh, at some point uh, regulations will allow cannabis in beer, and I believe that you'll be able to go to uh, taverns, pubs, and bars. It may require a special, separate license, but you'll you'll be able to consume alcohol and cannabis at the same location, which you can't do right now. So you know, it's just uh, like I said, you know, evolving. You know, we we are always evolving in our tastes and our. Our, our fads and uh, our likes and dislikes. And um, so I do think that uh, eventually we will see cannabis-infused beer. Okay. So it's not legal in California currently? Correct. It's not legal in California. Is is your organization lobbying for such? No. God, we have bigger things that are kind of more important in the near future that we're working on. So it's it's not right now. and. Yeah, not to say that it won't be in the future, um, but not something that we're working on right now. I think it's too new. I think we as a society have to kind of get uh, get our feet wet with cannabis, and that's going to take some time. But uh, so I think it would be a very heavy lift <laughs> to try to do that right now. I think it's probably premature for us to try to do that. So it might be premature for brewers to experiment with what I'm calling happy hops. <laughs> I love that term. Uh, yeah, it would be uh, it would be premature. For, it okay. would be illegal for a brewer to do that on a on a license license. Okay, premature and illegal. All right, uh, super. Thanks for your your uh, thoughts on that. So, given a millennial U.S. demographic dominance. What do you see for craft beer and cider in your crystal keg in, say, three years from now? Crystal keg. I'm looking into it right now. Excellent. And I alluded that dude a, up. A, a little bit to, yeah, I, uh, I see continued growth for sure, as I mentioned. And I three see, to 5%? Uh, three to 5% annual over the next three to five years. I see some new innovative styles. I see something that 
maybe a little disturbing to some, but uh, I'm pretty sure that craft brewers and big brewers are going to get into these new alternative uh, malt-based beverages. So they're classified as beer. In other words, they're taxed as beer and, and you can make these with a brewer's license. But things like the alcohol sparkling waters, uh, even alcoholic still uh, waters, um, some uh, blending of cider with these types of products and beer. So uh, some innovative kind of what we're calling alternative uh, malt beverage products that are a little bit hard for the, you know, those people that just love the the authentic beer styles, but it seems to be of interest in the marketplace. And I think with the next generation coming up, um, that this may be a, a new growing product. So I'm seeing that in the next three years, I'm seeing more brewery tap rooms and um, kind of expanding more into what they offer in terms of being more a destination offering entertain, entertainment. I mean, we're already seeing that, but I think we'll see more of that where there's other reasons to come to a brewery tap room than just a beer uh, for entertainment, games, things of that nature. Um, and I see, uh, you know, a, a happy, healthy uh, industry and, and segment. I'm optimistic. Fabulous. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, you mentioned cider blends with beer. So if I had a cidery and I got buddies with a brewery, would there be any licensing issues? Or if I was a brewery and I wanted to go into the cider biz, back to the what you said about the spirits, can I go ahead and do the same? Um, you know, can I can I make a cider on my in in my my beer facility in my brewery? There's some pretty strict pretty pretty strict limitations on that right now, okay. and we are kind of beginning the process of, of having that dialogue with other stakeholders in the industry and with some regulatory um, agencies to be able to expand that. So it's not done easily right now, but we are looking at um, maybe successfully passing some laws that would make that more doable um, in terms of blending these different types of products. That's excellent because I, th- I believe cider sort of falls underneath the wine guidelines. It does. It's regulated uh, as a, as a as a correct as a wine, right? So, in that crystal keg, do you happen to have Wednesday's lotto numbers? I do, and I'm looking at them right now, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. Oh, thanks a lot, Tom. <laughs> All right, well, just a few more, a uh, few more questions here. Uh, so, with with nine thousand, I guess the Brewers Association is predicting nine thousand breweries by the end of 2019, twelve thousand by the W, uh, the wholesaler, whatever association, the big guys, WS, is it WS? I forget. Uh, wholesaler Beer Association, twelve thousand and five thousand plus wineries. Eight to eight hundred and fifty cideries, the craft spirits trend we talked about, and what I call hard kombucheries, all competing for consumer share of stomach, wholesaler attention, and on and off premise real estate. What areas of marketing should craft brewers improve upon or invest in? 
Well, I think they uh, need to diversify, and as we have already talked about, you know, maybe getting involved in some of those other beverage categories that you mentioned. But in terms of uh, the marketing, whew, I know there's just a lot of clutter out there. The, the most important marketing effort that a craft brewery can do is in their QC lab. It's uh, make good product, product that is uh, consistent, uh, stable in the marketplace, um, and that is just a you know very well made product. Um, that's the best thing that they can do as a marketing uh, from the marketing standpoint. And you know I I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain these number of uh, breweries and kombucha makers and cideries, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we may be close to the zenith of that number. Um, but for those who want to survive, which of course everybody does, I think the two keys are making a good product and running a good business. And it's kind of surprising and sometimes disappointing how much I see uh, craft breweries missing the mark on one of those two. And, you know, the, if you can nail both of those, the, the, the marketing part is, is secondary. Um, you just have to, you know, evolve with the times and, and embrace the new methods of, of marketing and uh, tell your story. Uh, but mainly you have to really invest in the quality of your product and run a, a good business. And sometimes that may mean bringing somebody from the outside in who knows how to run a business because a lot of entrepreneurs that start breweries because they homebrewed for 15 years, you know, aren't very good at running a business. Excellent summation on that. So make a quality consistent stable and good product for the marketplace. And that's really what branding is all about. So when I go back to buy that six pack, it tastes just like it did the, the last six pack I had, or when I had it on draft at the tap room. Exactly. That's right. You nailed it. So just kind of finishing up, Tom, um, I want to chat with you about primary demand. And I know uh, you, you know what that means. And for the listeners, uh, you know, primary demand, um, well, there's been a lot of recent press on the topic and on the promotion of primary demand, uh, an advertising campaign with the objective of increasing demand for beer, the category. That's what, what they mean by primary demand. This this concept is it's similar to the, the Got Milk campaign. Uh, back way back uh, in the '70s, that was pretty popular and, and pretty successful for for the category of milk. Um, are you aware of such? And if so, can you shed some light on the progress for the beer category? There has been recently an effort by um, stakeholders in the industry, in the beer industry. So that includes the large global brewers. Um, Anheuser-Busch InBev, Miller Coors, um, Diageo with um, Guinness and um, Constellation, um, uh, the National Beer Wholesalers, the Brewers Association. We're all in discussion and getting very, very close to formally um, agreeing to 
uh, kick off a, a campaign of that nature. So it would be an, a national ad campaign to promote the overall beer category, similar to what was done in, in Europe, uh, mainly in England, a uh, campaign called There's a Beer for That, in which it was a you know, well-funded advertising campaign promoting beer in general. Um, it's always hard when you get a lot of competitors in the room and try to uh, agree on things. Uh, but to my knowledge, it was going well until Anheuser-Busch came out with their Super Bowl ad campaign around cornstarch, what we often refer to as corngate. And corngate. Um, this isn't uh, uh, just kind of hearsay, but I have heard from good sources that uh, Miller Coors was unhappy with that and they pulled out of the coalition. And so for now, the coalition is um, stalled and not moving forward. So that's just kind of what I've heard. So at this point, it does not look like that uh, effort is uh, currently moving forward. Is that's that's unfortunate. And I've heard uh, you know similar information on that. And I think Heineken was involved too. But uh, is there anything that you at your level can do to try to rally these? alpha you know, big boys to you know help everyone well it's 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 tough i mean we would certainly uh we are an advocate for beer obviously and um, one of the largest in the nation we right would, we almost a thousand uh, breweries as you said so that would probably be the number one in the state and as the executive director i mean you are you're the man so is it possible that you could try to you know challenge these these uh these people to drop their petty arguments and it is corn gate seems to it seems like it might be over and uh, look at the bigger picture and and see what's going on with hey guys look what spirits and, and wine are doing uh beer is down below 49 percent uh we'd like to try to bring that back up and let's let's get together yeah i, I think it's it's definitely a, a, a cause worth uh, working towards and and fighting for because i think it benefits everybody so, um, yeah, I would absolutely be interested in trying to move the needle on that. Oh, that's great news. All right, well, I'm going to check back with you in about three months and see how we're doing on that. But uh, I've got to finish up with uh, one last, uh, just kind of a generic question here. Any additional suggestions, Tom, uh, for our Shine Runner listeners? Nope, uh, other than just enjoy beer and um you know, embrace it in the moment. It's a wonderful, wonderful beverage, and uh, it's a wonderful industry collectively. Overall, we employ a lot of people and provide really good jobs, and uh, it's, it's a lot of passionate people who really, really care about what they're doing. And uh, so we, we love to, to share that with, with everyone. And uh, so just... Uh, Encourage everyone to work together and support your your local brewery. And if you're in the beer business, um, continue the collaboration and camaraderie that we've seen for so many years. And uh, it, it's really a, a great industry to to be in. And uh, I think that's that's about the only 
suggestion I can I can provide. I think great suggestions, and we greatly appreciate you coming on, Tom, uh, to share your thoughts and expertise on the Shine Runner Show. Love to have you back again. Uh, thank you very much, and have a fantastic week. Great. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website at shinerunnercraftmarketing.com. Feel free to contact me if you're in need of marketing, sales, experiential event, or distribution consultation at shinerunner at comcast.net. Also, check out my book, Craft Beer Marketing and Distribution, Race for Skumageddon. Hey, we're still looking for sponsors. This is a targeted podcast that reaches a great many brewers, distillers, cider makers, wineries, and more. Join us next time on the Brewing Network Shine Runner Show for episode number 22. And I got to say, I'm not sure what that's going to be yet. So that's a to be determined. Take care.